Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Investor's Guide to China. I'm Catherine Young, Investment Director at Fidelity International. In today's episode, I'll be having a conversation with Louis Garve, the founder and CEO of GavCal, a leading independent provider of global investment research. Louis, thanks so much, and it's it's great having you on our show today. Thank you very much for having me. Louis, a couple of years ago, you were on the podcast talking about the divergence between China and the West. So is this divergence still there? Has it narrowed? Or indeed, would you argue it's in fact widened? Oh, I think it's increased. I think it's increased on many levels. Where it's increased the most, I would say, is in our world, in, uh, in the investment world, in terms of investment flows. And perhaps not Asia in general, but definitely surrounding China. I think it's also happened mildly happened in terms of supply chain. Not as much, I think, as uh, you would believe when you see all the hype uh, in the media narrative. But when you look at supply chains, there is no doubt that factories have moved from China to Vietnam, to Indonesia, to Mexico. So far, that's been really crumbs off of China's table. For these other economies, though, they've had a feast off of these crumbs. But that knife cut both ways, because I think you've also seen a real effort by China to de-Westernize its own supply chains produce more at home and be less reliant on basically foreign suppliers. So this China plus one strategy it was already in the making before COVID. And as you rightly pointed out, the Chinese were almost rejecting low NFDI. So is the issue with the fact that they are increasing their high end manufacturing, they're competing against other nations and, and here lies the real risk because they are taking global market share? I think that's exactly right. I think the biggest misperception in China today is that in the Western world, if you follow the media narrative, you would believe that the Chinese economy is imploding on the back of a weak real estate, on the back of too much interference from Xi Jinping and whatever else. For me, by far the most important trend is how China 10 years ago had a trade surplus of 30 billion a month, today has a trade surplus of 80 billion a month. And behind this trade surplus is a simple reality, the one you just highlighted. The fact that China has basically moved from exporting fairly low value added goods, think plastic toys, textiles, shoes, into much higher value added goods. China is now all of a sudden from nowhere five years ago, the world's leading exporters of cars, of earth moving equipment, of railroads, power plants, all the things that we, the Western world used to do and dominate, China is now taking over. And it's taking over in emerging markets. You know, all this growth of China selling trains, power plants, et cetera, it's not happening in France or in the UK or in the US, it's happening in Indonesia and in Saudi Arabia, in Pakistan. So I think what we're seeing today is really a new wave of globalization. A lot of countries around Asia, Africa and elsewhere are industrializing on the cheap and on credit thanks to China exporting high-end machine tools very cheaply. And this uh, new wave of globalization unfolding in front of our very eyes is really the first wave of globalization in 500 years in which the Western world is not involved. And so, you know, really basically globalization, if you think that it starts with Christopher Columbus sailing for the Americas, globalization was always centered on the Western world. It was trade between emerging markets and the Western world. And now it's trade between emerging markets and emerging markets. So yes, this is a big threat for developed markets. But then why aren't we seeing the Chinese consumer or the Chinese investor feel confident about their own market? Oh, I think that's uh, pretty simple. Most of the Chinese savings and most of the, I would say even the perception of savings in China 
for 40 years revolved around real estate. And the real estate market, for a number of reasons, is doing very badly. So if you know, most of your assets are tied up to real estate and that asset class isn't doing well, then you don't feel that great. You know, I think in the US, about a third of consumers' net worth is tied up to real estate. Uh, in China, it's, uh, it's more than two thirds. So I think that distinction right there tells you everything you need to know. If we look at the bear argument when it comes to China, one of it has been about real estate and infrastructure spending. The growth model was unsustainable. So in fairness to the regulators, as they set out and tried to change the model, hence the situation we're somewhat in. But what is the longer term solution? In China, we had a, a growth model that was completely disjointed. It was overly reliant on real estate, which works potentially as long as you have growing population. And China didn't have growing population per se, but it did have 20 million people moving from the farms to the cities every year, which would create both its own productivity gains and its own demand for real estate. You know, each time you transformed a farmer producing goods worth $500 a year into a factory worker producing goods worth $20,000 a year, you get a big productivity gain, higher salaries, which would create its own demand. To the extent that this is now not completely over, but definitely not what it used to be, China's you know, business model has to change. Now, I think the perception in the Western world is this transition that China is going through entails an implosion of the Chinese business model. And I think the reason we believe that is because of our own experiences. We had a real estate slowdown in 2008, which led to an implosion of our financial systems and to an economic cataclysm. Ergo, we see China going through a real estate problem impacting the banks, and we project our own experiences onto China and say, look, this is going to lead to the Chinese implosion. The reality is real estate has now been consolidating for five years and the Chinese economy has not imploded mm -hmm. because you have these other drivers. You have the moving up the value chain in terms of uh, its exports. You have the trade surplus. You have consumption that not quite as strong as before is still holding up. So all in all, you know, the, the implosion of the Chinese economy just hasn't come around in spite of many magazine covers for the simple reason that the very drivers of the Chinese economy are very different. And households are rich, relatively speaking, right? A savings rate of 36%. The households have a lot of savings. What leverage has been has been mostly against uh, real estate, uh, against real estate where, you know, interest rates have been coming down. So the cost of that leverage is, is not that much of a burden. What should we worry more about? The Chinese mortgages when real estate have just gone down from four to two and a half? or U.S. mortgages when real estate have just gone up from 2% up to 7.5%. I think if you want to be afraid of real estate today, right now, I would tend to be more worried about real estate in places like Australia, Canada, the U.K., or wherever else where mortgages are being reset as we speak, 100 of basis points higher than where they were just a couple of years ago, relative to China, where mortgage rates continue to go down. Yeah, exactly. And also, I think that it gets lost sometimes, especially by Western or foreign investors, about the evolution of the secondary market in terms of real estate. So there's a lot just evolving in China, so much factored into price. Now, an area of the market that does seem a little bit expensive is um, EV and, and AI. What are your thoughts on AI in particular? AI is expensive, not just in China. It's expensive everywhere. I think what's interesting on AI is if you go back four or five years ago, the general perception was that China would dominate AI because it would have a, a dramatic comparative advantage in its ability first to harness so much data because you've got 1.2 billion people all using smartphones, et cetera. So you could harness all of this data, so massive data sets, 
with far fewer privacy rights, far fewer constraints on, on what you, you would be able to harvest. So if you go back to the narrative four or five years ago, the narrative was China's going to dominate AI. Fast forward to today, and it does feel like China's been leapfrogged by chat GPT, by Western advances or US advances. The reality, I think, is AI is not a sprint. It's a, it's a marathon, and we're probably at kilometer two or three out of the 42-kilometer marathon. So there's, there's still a lot of race to go, still a lot of excitement. The U.S. has its advantages. China has its advantages. I would say that in the whole scheme of things, AI in China tends to be priced much more attractively than AI in the U.S. You know, if you think that the big AI China play is, is Baidu and the big U.S. AI play is Microsoft, you know, Baidu's trading at a fraction of the Microsoft valuation. And granted, that's not a very fair comparison because, you know, they all have different businesses, other businesses. But today, amidst all this AI hype, all the hope out there, I think there's decently attractively valued play in China. On this very subject about AI, Fidelity recently held an investment conference in Shanghai themed around this subject. Tina Tian, one of our portfolio managers who covers tech innovation in China, was on the ground to speak to some of the country's industry leaders. We asked her how the conference was going and whether the bubbly sentiment around AI has started to decline. The, the session that I hosted in the morning, we've actually got you know, three types of companies who we call them AI iron triangle. So they're like three critical parts of the AI ecosystem experts from AliCloud, so they're you know, providing all those computer resources, services, and then we have Lenovo, who is a hardware provider, so they are basically developing all these uh, intelligent equipment and trying to help the or enable the realization of AI technology. And we've also got application developer, uh, such as you know, companies from autonomous driving, chip design, houses, etc. Interestingly, all of them are very optimistic because you know, they see this as a strategic opportunity for a lot of um, the Chinese companies to help them improve the efficiency and the also monetization opportunities in the future. I guess from the audience perspective, I chatted with some of our clients and partners as well. I think they are generally positive as well. But at the same time, you know, just looking at some of the stocks which have gone up a lot uh, year to date, I think there's a little bit caution there, just in terms of valuation, right? What are the implied potential of already being factored in valuation? But everybody here is very positive about the positive changes that AI will bring to our lives and future. Well, the US restrictions on the exports of key chip technologies are a challenge for the sector. Tina said there was a lot of talk at the conference about opportunities for monetization within the AI space. I think at the moment, I see more opportunities in terms of monetization in the hardware sort of infrastructure area because we, we need the upgrades in infrastructure and hardware as well to enable the capabilities of AI. Right, so here we're talking about, say, the AI servers, you know, components in servers such as GPUs, memory, PCBs, etc. And then in terms of application of AI technology, I think at the moment there are still limited fields that we can see um, 
huge opportunities for monetization. It's still early, put it that way. During the conference, I think we actually talked about how AI is applied to autonomous driving and also how AI is, is applied to healthcare, which I think they're all very interesting developments. But at the moment, in terms of monetization itself, it still takes time to really to be seen. I think for healthcare, we're already seeing AI being able to reduce the cost of developing innovative drugs. So it's not necessarily a monetization of the technology per se, but the AI technology has helped reduce costs for companies. I think that applies to many other companies as well. So it's not really a monetization of their services. It's about them using the technology to improve their own operation efficiency. And finally, we asked Tina whether Chinese companies had any particular advantages over their overseas competitors. I think big data is definitely one advantage for the Chinese companies given you know, in terms of the quantity of data and access of data, it's a strong area in China. And secondly, I'd say you know, the large consumer market is also a good advantage for, for Chinese AI companies. So I just walked out of the session of, you know, we have a bunch of healthcare experts talking about uh, the application of AI in their fields. I think the one thing they mentioned, if you think about you know, the patient pool in China, the number of hospitals, thousands and thousands of hospitals in China, it's a huge market, huge unmet demand. Louis, Tina raised some really interesting points just now. And I guess also when we look at AI, could it be a solution or in fact more of a burden, especially the youth unemployment situation? Absolutely. AI is going to throw an employment challenge to everyone. And in China, it comes at a time, as you point out, where youth unemployment is already very high. Now, the reason for the high youth unemployment number is the dramatic improvement in the state of education in China. I went to university in China in the early 90s. Back then, China was graduating 300,000 university kids a year. Today, China graduates 10 million. You know, that's, that's 30x in 30 years. It's quite unprecedented. Like, well, it's actually not quite. Nobody's ever done this. And I think the challenge is these kids, you know, they've worked hard, they've gone through school. Probably some have gone through schools that neither you or I could get in you know, today, <laughs> like really hard. They graduate and they don't want to take jobs, you know, pouring concrete or pounding sand. They want jobs like you and I have with laptops and they want service industry jobs. And that's China's real challenge today is China has a big primary industry. It's got a huge manufacturing. It's bigger. It's industrial economy is bigger than the United States now. But the service economy is still minuscule uh, relative to that uh, of the United States or any other major Western economy. One of the points uh, Malcolm Gladwell makes in, in his book, Outliers, is that he looks at the guys who created the tech industry. Bill Gates, Larry Ellison, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, etc. And they were all born within nine months of each other. And so the point uh, Malcolm Gladwell makes is he says, well, look, all these guys were born next to each other, so it's sort of egged each other on. I actually think he missed the bigger point. The bigger point, and by the way, all of them were college dropouts. And I think the interesting thing is they were all in college at the same time, and they all dropped out in 73, 74. And they dropped out in 73, 74 because the U.S. was going through a terrible recession. 
And so there was no point in staying in college. When you left college, you weren't going to get the job at Fidelity uh, or at JP Morgan or at IBM because there were no such jobs. So we have to oh, hope that just like the tough conditions of 73, 74 created the outliers of Bill Gates, Larry Ellison, Steve Jobs, etc., that China will do the same. So I'm hoping for China that the law of large numbers means when you look at all these kids unemployed, some of them will have no choice but to lift themselves up by their own bootstrap and create something that neither you nor I can imagine right now. You know, who could have imagined Microsoft, Apple, Oracle in 1976, 1977? They would have all seemed science fiction-like. But it's interesting, when you actually speak to the company management teams and putting aside geopolitical risks with governments, um, you know, as an example, you mentioned Bill Gates. I saw, or I was visiting the uh, Alibaba headquarters last month in Hangzhou, and they had this massive wall. I don't know whether you've seen it with this mural. And it's a bit like that book, Where's Wally? <laughs> so you can find Jack there, yes. Pony Ma's that there, right. Zuckerberg's there, <laughs> Bill Gates is there. And to me, it kind of reflected or, or represented that Chinese companies view themselves now collectively. On an even par. Yes, and they're working together to develop AI. They might be in competition, but they really view themselves differently to, again, when you said that you know, China used to just manufacture shoes and toys. No, I think that's, uh, th that's very true. So first, you know, credit where credit is due. Mm -hmm. When you look around the world, how many countries have managed to build a proper tech ecosystem? Uh, the US obviously has. And China obviously has, but that's really it. You know, Europe, for as many engineers as we produce, for our economic advances, for our wealth, hasn't really created anything on the tech front. No, we have some interesting companies. ASML is obviously a global leader. Infineon is a global leader, but they're more the exception that confirms the rule. So China has managed to create this ecosystem. And I do believe, on to your point, that while there was a source of intense competition in the first phases. I think that the takedown of Huawei by the US government in 2018, when the US government said, you know what, no more semiconductors to Huawei and to ZTE and to others, sort of triggered a circle the wagon mentality amongst Chinese tech companies, of course, pushed by the Chinese government that said, look, guys, we have to work together in building semiconductor solutions, building software solutions, building server solutions, so that we are a lot less dependent on the US because if we stay dependent on the US, as we see with Huawei, that will not work. And you know, lo and behold, six years later or five years later, you know, Huawei has survived. Huawei has just launched a phone that took pretty much the whole tech world completely by surprise. The new Pulse 60, it's in advance to any other phone out there. Mm -hmm. Everybody's wondering how come China could produce a seven nanomillimeter chip? Can they produce it at scale or not? Right now it doesn't look like they can, but it's up in the air. But, you know, I think this does highlight a certain level of cooperation between the various parts of the, the Chinese tech ecosystem. And also, if we move outside of tech, China's not, or even Asia's not reliant as much on, on, let's say, U.S. foreign flows. I mean, you can speak to sovereign wealth players and they're saying we're deliberately diversifying away from the U.S. Maybe they've got too much exposure. I mean, China really stands to benefit. India, everyone's, you know, applauding the fact that JP Morgan's going to include Indian bonds into the index. But, you know, the Chinese bond market, I mean, it's been a stellar performer. It's actually interesting because today the great debate indeed is China's uninvestable. How can you deploy capital in China, etc. Now, Chinese equity returns have been undeniably very disappointing. Chinese bond market returns have been tremendous 
over the past three years, Chinese long-dated Chinese government bonds have outperformed U.S. Treasuries by a third. So, you know, starting really post-2008, China went around to all the sovereign wealth funds, all the, the central banks, and said, look, guys, instead of trading in U.S. dollars, let's trade in renminbi. Instead of keeping U.S. Treasuries as reserves, also hold some renminbi. And that's what's happened. Fundamentally, you know, Chinese bonds have been a terrific diversifier for portfolios. And while U.S. Treasuries for the past three years have been melting down, Chinese government bonds have held their value. And this even in U.S. dollar terms, even with the renminbi going down a little bit. So I, I'm glad you highlight this because I think probably because of the way the press portrays things or the retail investors think, we tend to always disproportionately focus on stocks. But meanwhile, bond markets are much bigger than equity markets. You know, and most of the world's capital in central banks and insurance companies, et cetera, bond markets really matter. And the reality is the Chinese bond market has been a good place to deploy capital. So we have a very stable, good performing bond market. Do you think we could ever see the RMB displace or replace the US dollar? I think that's a tough one. The way I've always thought about currencies is a little bit like a computer operating system, right? I'm going to guess that you know, you guys at Fidelity use Microsoft. I use Microsoft. And the reason I use Microsoft is because you guys use Microsoft so that I can exchange files with you so that if, you know, we hire somebody new, they know how to use Microsoft. So if we're going to switch away from Microsoft, we need the new operating system to not just be marginally better, but to be miles better so that everybody does it at the same time. And the reality is for all of its strengths, you know, the RMB also has a lot of weaknesses. So it can take some of the market share, just like Apple took some of the market share from Microsoft, but it can't take it all. What I would say though, is that as use of the RMB grows, and this is where I think people misconstrue reserve currencies. Let us imagine an Indonesian coal miner. For years and years, their main supplier was Caterpillar. You know, they'd buy Caterpillar machines, and this meant that they had to keep working capital in dollars because Every five or 10 years, American banks would decide, I don't want to lend to Indonesia because of whatever reason. And so if they didn't have working capital in dollars, they couldn't pay for the spare parts for their Caterpillar and things would implode. Now, all of a sudden, they have long haul machinery that comes knocking on their door and says, hey, instead of buying a Caterpillar for 100, buy a long haul for 60. And I can guarantee you that Bank of China, China Construction Bank will always fund this. So now I've got two choices. I can buy my working capital from the U.S. or I can buy it from China and I can pay for it through U.S. funding or through China funding. So now I can have much lower working capital than before. I don't need to keep as many U.S. treasuries uh, on my balance sheet. And the U.S. treasuries get replaced not with renminbi. They get replaced with nothing. I can just have lower reserves now that I can buy my oil from Russia in rupees or in ru Indian rupees or in Chinese renminbi or whatever else. And my working capital can also be lower. I can use that capital to either open a new mine or to buy back my shares or whatever else. So I think the big misconception out there is that, oh, is the renminbi going to replace the U.S. dollar? The reality is the U.S. dollar is going to be replaced with nothing. Yeah. We're just going to need fewer U.S. dollars to allow global trade to function as commodities now get priced in other currencies and as capital goods now get priced in other currencies. And of course, the whole Belt Road Initiative also seeing local currencies in terms of, of the funding, right? Absolutely. Look, to the extent that India can now buy its oil in rupees from Russia and to the extent that India 
can now buy its capital goods, partly in rupees, partly in renminbi from China. Why should India have to keep $700 billion in U.S. treasuries that are now losing money year in, year out? It's third consecutive year. For the first time in history, we're looking at three consecutive negative year on U.S. treasuries. This has never happened before. So the need to keep dollar reserves goes down all the time as savings, as banking systems develop across all these emerging markets, and they can fund their own trade in their own local currency rather than dollars. It feels, Louis, that China's really going through this period of continual evolution, and the market is mispricing it, I think. I'm sure you, you, you tend to agree. Would you also say that you're seeing improving corporate governance with the companies in terms of how they behave, whether it's rewarding minority shareholders through dividends or indeed buybacks, disclosure rules? I think China is so big that you can always point to examples of anything you want. You know, you want to show that China implodes, you can show that. You want to show bad corporate governance, lots of examples. You want to show improving governance, you can also show that. It's so big that there's examples of, of everything. What I would say today is that China is the ultimate contrarian trade. Meanwhile, the situation really isn't that bad. The real, I'm not saying the real estate situation is good, it is not. And I'm not saying you know the, the political situation is the very best, it's not. I think it's worth at least a second look. It's worth at least thinking, okay, how does it get worse from here? I know how it gets better. The way it gets better is what you just highlighted, announcing bigger share buybacks, capturing market share across emerging markets. So I can see some positive catalysts today. You know, where's the negative catalyst? I think the negative catalyst, or you could tell me it's oil prices at $150, it's World War III because of the Middle East, et cetera. But, but those are negative catalysts that impact the whole global world. So then you mentioned uh, government policy. And from where we look at it, or the way we see it, is that all parts of the government are looking for growth, but it's a sustainable growth. It's not the kind of crazy growth that we are used to when it comes to China. And they need to have a, a healthy capital markets because property no longer is going to be the backbone. So all that capital or income in the household needs to be diverted somewhere, right? China is one of the few places where the growth rate of broad money, of M2, is far greater than the growth rate of nominal GDP. So China is the one economy where you know, the local authorities, the officials, are pushing more money in the system than the system really needs to, to keep going. Uh, so there is excess liquidity in China. So far, it's just sitting in the banks. Mm -hmm. Historically, when China's done this, push more money than the system needs, that money would tend to go into real estate. And sometimes some would leak also into equities and equities would move up. I think for a number of reasons, it's unlikely to go into real estate right now. So when you look at this excess liquidity creation in China, is it going to stay in the banks? Is it going to leak abroad? Is it going to go into gold? Or is it going to go into equities? I think it's not a 0% probability that it goes into equities. So Louis, just very simply, what keeps you up at night? I think right now the biggest threat to the global economy is an oil price that goes to $150. I worry about that a lot more than I worry about uh, China imploding. I think the media narrative around China is far too negative uh, and is actually being disproven as we speak. You know, the, the pessimism this, this summer was sky high. And a lot of the data the past couple of months has started to, to pick up again. So no, I don't worry too much about China. I do think what could derail today's fragile economic uh, balance around the world would be an oil price at $150. And 
you know, I think there's enough reasons to think that could happen. I'm not saying it will happen, but you asked me what keeps me up at night. I think there's enough reasons to think why that could happen. Obviously, we're very much beholden to Russian exports at a time when we are in an open conflict with Russia. So could Russia just decide I'm going to cut exports and allow oil prices to shoot up? And what we're not beholden for from Russia, we're, not, we're also beholden to the Middle East at a time when, you know, the, the situation in the Middle East is, is worrisome. So if, if you want to look for real potential accidents, I think that's, that's it. I think that we also both agree that when it comes to China, it's about resetting expectations and what you used to be able to make a lot of money from from China. Maybe it's just a different way of accessing those returns and that alpha. I think that's exactly right. There's no doubt that's right with China because people misread the past 10 years. They thought, I'm going to make a lot of money on stocks because the Chinese economy is going to be good. And the reality is all the money was made on government bonds. That was the good asset class, which incidentally, for the past 10 years, the Chinese government has been going around saying, we want a strong bond market. We want to create a reserve currency in the renminbi. We know we can't do that unless we have a strong and stable bond market. They were telling you what they were going to do. That is the thing about the Chinese leaders. They do have a pretty decent track record of saying what they'll do and doing what they'll say. They said for the past 15 years, they've been saying, we're going to internationalize the renminbi. We're going to create a proper bond market. And they have. And so that was easy money. And you know, today, they also said, we want to slow down real estate, and they have. You know, today, I think they are trying to crank up the stock market. So I think it's a you know, worthy trade for the next few years where, you know, again, when you're buying stocks that are very cheap, at least you know you won't break a leg falling out of the ground floor window. Yeah, Louis, so very true. Thank you again for sharing Thank your you views and hopefully see you soon and, and come back onto our show. I'd love to. Thank you very much for having me. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you again to our guest, Louis Garve, and to our other contributor, Tina Tian. And thank you, of course, for listening. If you want to read more of what's being covered today, please go to your local Fidelity website or visit fidelityinternational.com. The producers were Rory Fong and Neil Goff, with production support from Tommy Sue and Keith Chern. The editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from all of us here at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local fidelity website.